Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. If you're a bystander and witness a crime, should intervention to prevent that crime be a legal obligation? Or is moral responsibility enough? Amos Giora addresses these profound questions and the bystander-victim relationship from a deeply personal and legal perspective, focusing on the Holocaust, then exploring cases in contemporary society. He shares the experiences of his parents and grandparents during the Holocaust and examines sexual assault cases at Vanderbilt and Stanford and other crimes where bystanders chose not to intervene. And Professor Giora recommends that we must make the obligation to intervene the law and thus non-intervention a crime. Amos Giora is a professor of law at the S.J. Quinney College of Law at the University of Utah. He's a lieutenant colonel, retired in the Israel Defense Forces, and uh, he has published extensively, both in the U.S. and Europe, on issues related to national security, limits of interrogation, religion and terrorism, and the limits of power and multiculturalism, and human rights. He's the author of several books, and the latest is The Crime of Complicity, the Bystander in the Holocaust. Amos Giora joins us from the studios of KUER in Salt Lake City. Professor Giora, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate you uh, coming back on the, on the program. This is a very, very interesting, important book, uh, of course. Um, I want to start with, with the, the personal here. Um, you, this is professional, but also deeply personal for you. And you say that the second generation of uh, you know, children of Holocaust uh, uh, survivors um, live in the shadow, I think you, you, uh, you called it, uh, of that. And you said that's profoundly true for you. It's absolutely true for me. Um, <clears throat> I was raised in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Both of my parents are Holocaust survivors, and I am an only child. And when I was 12 years old, my father took me canoeing. I don't know why canoeing, but canoeing and told me that in one minute he will tell me his story, and in one minute he will tell me his, um, my mom's story, and that's the first and last time, according to him, <clears throat> we will ever discuss the Holocaust. And my father was a highly distinguished academic with extraordinary writing skills and are very articulate, and he never wrote about it and never talked about it, and it was exactly that one minute, or one minute his story, one minute his, her story, and I really grew up in a home of books and culture and, you know, home of an academic, but nothing about the Holocaust. Mm. And when I talk about the shadow of the Holocaust, I think that's absolutely true for all second generation. And I think maybe even for third generation um, in certain circumstances. But what perhaps made my situation more complex was that I knew this thing existed, but we never talked about it. Hmm. And you're, I think your mother at one point said, well, we're, we're trying to protect you from this, right? Trying they to made a de- that's exactly right. They made a decision when they got married that they would never share with their children their Holocaust experiences, and they were true to their word. But the really interesting thing, as I discovered while writing the book, is that my father never shared with my mom the true story of how he survived. Which is also interesting. Hmm. I mean, not only did they shield me, um, but I, I assume they shielded each other. And I think they they genuinely made the decision when they got married to, if you will, to forge ahead or move ahead with their lives. But I also need to add, I have friends like me who are second generation, whose every night dinner conversation was only about the Holocaust and whose my friends know intimate details of how their parents survived the Holocaust and 
their parents know, you know, the husband knows how the wife survived and so on. My parents simply chose a very different uh, approach. Which do you think is, is better or healthier? I guess it maybe depends on the family. But. I think it depends on the family. And I decided, you know, my father died while I was writing the book and my, my mother's alive. She lives in Jerusalem. She's, you know, healthy and well and all that. But I don't think there's any point in 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 challenging their decision or in questioning it. They decided what they decided. They felt they were doing what was best. And I think I've just simply decided to accept that and to um, move on. But the way I moved on ultimately was the book. I mean, that was really, for me, the first time I really came to grips with the question of who am I and who are my parents. This, uh, um, I can imagine this must be very painful. You write in the book, it's extremely painful at, in, in parts. You, you, you took a couple of trips, took a trip back to Hungary, right, where I, some of the yeah. events happened. You said it was, you used the word brutal. It you? was brutal. I went, there's, some, there's, a, there's an industry called, I don't like the word industry, but we'll use that word called um, Holocaust Roots Trip. So I did that with my father to Hungary oh, about 18 years ago, just he and I, <clears throat> and it was a miserable experience. And then while writing the book, I, I realized that to really understand, to really come to grips, I had to see certain things. I had to find my father's uh, childhood home, which I did. I had to find the Jewish cemetery in the town where my father was raised because I had to find the memorial to all the Holocaust victims from that town who were murdered in Auschwitz, and I found my grandparents' name. And then I had to make myself stand on the train platform uh, from which my grandparents were shoved onto a train, taken to Auschwitz and murdered the same day that um, they arrived there. And brutal is the right word. It was brutal at the time. And and frankly, having thought about it a lot, having written about it a great deal, I think that adjective is absolutely correct. By the way, this was in very interesting detail in the book. Uh, you had a, a German colleague invite you to meet him at a train platform, uh, and you, you said, no can do, or you no didn't want to do. do. Yeah, it, um, unrelated to the book, I was uh, invited by the German military, uh, irony of ironies, to train German military commanders on morality in armed conflict. I mean, it's switch with irony, right? Here's somebody who had served in the Israel Defense Forces coming to Germany to train the German soldiers on morality in armed conflict. Okay. And he indeed, uh, when we were emailing, said, you know, when you arrive at the Frankfurt airport, walk 42 steps this way, 33 steps that way, and I'll meet you at the train platform. And I said, no, you'll meet me at the gate. And later he asked me why. I mean, why not the train platform? And I instinctively said, I hadn't, didn't think about it, it just came out. And I said to him, you know, the last time your people invited my people to meet at the train platform, it didn't really work out very well. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, train, you can't really understand the Holocaust. Different conversation. You cannot understand the cannot understand the Holocaust without understanding the significance of the train platform. Hmm. And this was, you know, you didn't experience this, but your family did, and, and so that sh- certainly is, you know, a shared pain there. Uh, so you, I want to uh, just quote a couple of sentences from the book. We'll get into the 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 crime of complicity, bystander in the Holocaust. Uh, so the statement number one. Uh, you talk about the terrible combination of evil and passivity. And a second statement, bystander complicity was essential to the final solution. Absolutely. I think that the the perpetrators, you know, the Himmlers, the Heydrichs, the Eichmanns, the Hitlers, 
are enormously or were enormously facilitated, enabled by the passivity of the population and made their life uh, much easier. And I genuinely believe that, that evil as a thought can only be put into action if the bystander or the bystanders choose to be passive. And I think that as as horrible as the perpetrators were, and obviously they were, they needed the passivity of of the po- various you know populations, whether in, in Holland or Germany or Poland or Hungary. And without that, they're not able to um, execute the final solution. And I think that... That, for me, that combination of evil and passivity, or the passivity that enables the evil, or the evil that is dependent on the passivity, for me, in many ways, that is the essence of the bystander. And so you're examining what responsibility does the bystander have, and and ultimately, is there a legal obligation? You come down on that side. By the way, your father didn't come down on that side. He disagreed with you. He, both my parents disagreed with me. Um, and the reason they both disagreed with me is they were of the belief that the bystander of their time viewed the Jew as the other and that he or she, the bystander, um, did not have an obligation to the other. And what's interesting is, you know, my, as I came to learn, my father survived two death marches. And then the second death march was when he's going through the Carpathian Mountains, 136 kilometers, you know, from village to village. He, as he told me later, one, the one time we talked about this, had no expectation that the villager would, would in any way um, have a duty to, to him, to my father, because from the villager's perspective, the, the Serbian villager, my father, as the Jew, was the other. So, And my mother also, when she was running from safe house to safe house as a 12-year-old child with my grandmother, agreed with my father, disagreed with me, saying that the the Hungarian Gentile bystander did not owe the Jew, in this case my mother and grandmother, a duty because from the perspective of the Gentile bystander, the Jews were the, quote-unquote, the other. Hmm. Uh, of course, you disagree with this position, but my initial reaction is, uh, well, doesn't the bystander have responsibility to not view the other that way? That, you know, we're all one, right? I so, you know, disagreement with parents is a healthy thing. <laughs> and, I, and I guess for a parent to disagree with a child is also a healthy thing. And so we uh, respectfully agree to disagree. Mm-hmm. That's interesting, that, that, that perspective. Very interesting. Uh, I wonder, so getting into responsibility and there, there are gradations of this. And you, you tell three very interesting anecdotes about yourself at the beginning of the book. I wonder if you could, in brief, tell us uh, those uh, stories and, and uh, what that means. So I come to the bystander um, not by chance because I was five years old when my 14-year-old cousin uh, drowned swimming and I was the the last person to be with him. And even though I was five, we had this argument in the pool, do you know how to swim, do you not know how to swim? He had cerebral palsy and... um, I got out of the water. Rosh Hashanah here, did I get out of the water by myself? Did my mom take me out of the water? Depends who you ask. Um, But regardless of this version or that version, for me, the question of of personal responsibility for an unimaginable family tragedy, he died, um, clearly is an integral part of, of 
who I am, even though I was only five. Um, for me, the question of accountability, responsibility, on some level, clearly was um, was a critical part of, of, of it was is a critical part of who I am. Again, I, I wish on no one um, these kinds of, of truly horrific family tragedies. Um, but you know, I've, I've been in addition to that time. I was I've been a bystander on a couple of occasions. Once, when indeed I I acted, I as I understood from the Chicago Police Department, where I involved in saving someone, that I saved her life. And then I've been a bystander twice where I did not act. And you could ask me a million times, why did you not act? And I can give you the most blasé, cliche answers of the first time because I was rushing off to a football game. And I, you know, wasn't going to be late to the game, right? And the second time, because it was, you know, my neighbors who were pretty awful, people put their child out at night and locked them out of the house. But do you call the police? Do you not call the police? And I have no explanation for why not calling the police. And in the context of the bystander legislation, which indeed I advocate for, I would absolutely say that I had full capability knowledge. There was a screaming child in the middle of the night, um, and I chose not to act and um, in no way will I justify, rationalize my behavior or my non-behavior. Why do you, uh, starting with the, when you were five years old, by the way, there's a very poignant picture that, taken of you and your cousin the day before he died, right, mm-hmm. uh, in the book. Um, you're, you're five years old. So I'm obviously not responsible legally or accountable legally, but I think that I, the way I internalized it was, you know, I left him. Um, and, you know, the mad dash trying to find him, you know, we're running in the, around the swimming pool in the locker room, his brother and I, um, and then he's found in the bottom of the pool. I mean, it really is a horrible story. Um, so I'm not, obviously not legally responsible, not uh, legally accountable, but that the act, evidently, of, of leaving the pool, again, whether by myself or with, you know, a parent, um, had such a profound influence on me that I think it it shaped my understanding, even though I was five, of the consequences of inaction, or in this case of action. I mean, I you know I left the pool. Um, on the other hand, I you know there's only a limit to how much you can judge a five year old, um, but it evidently had again not to repeat but it had such a profound influence on in how I viewed the, the issue of action, non-action. And you're, you're absolutely right. When <clears throat> in writing the book, I said to myself, you know, how do I bring this to light? And the details are too, it'll take, us an hour, take me an hour to explain to you how I got the picture. But um, indeed, I got uh, the picture, um, which was indeed taken 24 hours before he died. It's the last picture of him and it's the two of us together. Uh, the other uh, couple of incidents that you you bring up, um, I think, would not be unusual, right? Uh, you're rushing to a, a football game, uh, <laughs> and, and it would have been late. Or uh, in the instance where you didn't call on, on the screaming child, uh, I guess, didn't want to get the parents in trouble, didn't, didn't want to get involved. But I, I think a lot of these questions run through our minds when we're deciding to get involved or not. I think you're 100% right, and... That's what makes the question of bystander legislation such an interesting question, you know, intellectually, legally, and practically. So I was walking with a, a friend of mine, and we saw a homeless gentleman 
you know, with the with the um, shopping cart filled with beer cans, beer bottles, which, the, you know, they returned for deposit purposes. And a college student overturned the, the cart. First of all, that's an assault. Um, and we looked at each other and may have said something to the student, maybe. But, you know, we certainly were going to be late for the game because the team needed us there. Um, that, for me, in retrospect, is captures the bystander. For for me, in terms of the accountability and liability of a bystander, you have to have knowledge. I mean, that's we can also discuss that. If, if you watch something on Facebook, are you a bystander? But for me, it's the, it's the being there. You have knowledge. You're seeing it. And you have the capability to act. And we saw it. We had knowledge. And we certainly had capability. I mean, we had both cell phones. Just dial 911 and say to local law enforcement, here's a college student assaulting a homeless guy. And it was in Ann Arbor, Michigan. There are, you know, lots and lots and lots of police there because there are 110,000 people going to a Michigan football game. I have no doubt within a minute and a half, a cop would have shown up and would have done what, you know, whatever law enforcement would have felt appropriate to do. The excuse of, um, you know, I got to rush off to the game um, transitory convenience at that very moment, but when you think about it, it you are right. It really is the kind of day in, day out interaction we all have. And the question is, what do you do with that? And here was a homeless guy who had been assaulted. I was I was witness to an assault, and I moved on. And again, um, I have no. I'm not going to justify it, explain it, or rationalize it. I I. I acted wrongly. With respect to the screaming child, um, I mean, you know, neighbors' kids cry. I mean, you know, it's part and parcel of, of living in a community. But the way this child was 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 screaming, it was pretty clear that there was something else at play here. And um, there is always a concern, and it's been you know raised in responses to the book that. Are we going to over-report? And when um, there were hearings on the bill, on Representative Brian King's um, bill last January in the um, Utah um, House of Representatives um, in the state legislature, um, the point was made by the, um, a fire chief that better call us than not call us. Where He, the fire chief, is in the business of saving lives, and the only way that lives can be saved is if the citizen or the resident or the civilian, whoever, calls law enforcement, dials 911. And that really is, in many ways, what this bill is. It's a 911 bill. Just dial 911, say, and, you know, 1234 Main Street, there's something clearly wrong. And from the perspective of law enforcement, it's, it's something that has been made clear to me that law enforcement welcomes because they're in the business of saving our lives. We are talking, you've just joined us with Amos Giora. He is professor of law at the University of Utah. And his latest book, a uh, very interesting, uh, important book, The Crime of Complicity, The Bystander in the Holocaust. This is not only academic for Professor Giora, it's uh, very personal. Uh, his paternal grandparents were uh, murdered in the, in the Holocaust. Uh, his uh, parents uh, survived. His, uh, his father, so two death marches. That's uh, what your father survived. That's what you're saying. Indeed. Uh, so let's talk about that. And uh, you, interesting, you, you took uh, some trips to Holland uh, to to investigate the idea of, of neighbor neighbors not doing anything, um, and uh, you know not strangers. Uh, so there's a there's a lot of stories, of course, from the Holocaust. Very heightened uh, way to examine this, and uh, we'll get into some of those uh, stories, some of them personal, following this break. 
Many of us are still processing the Kavanaugh hearings in the 2018 elections. We're absorbing the news and wondering where the Me Too movement is and where it's going. As a part of the UPR original series, Utah Women 2020, Utah Public Radio is hosting a town hall panel discussion titled Me Too Continues. Where are we post-Kavanaugh post-election? Join us Friday, January 25th at 6 p.m. in the Lundstrom Student Center on the USU campus. Come with your questions and comments and join the discussion. Details at upr.org. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members. And Cash Arts presents the national tour of Rodgers and Hammerstein's The King and I, based on the Lincoln Center Theater production and featuring classic songs like Shall We Dance and Getting to Know You, January 22nd and 23rd at 7.30 p.m. Ticket information at cacharts.org. Myths and legends, universal to all cultures, are stories about events. Often, myths include something supernatural, and they are passed down orally from generation to generation. It is very common for a group of people to share a belief about their creation. One creation story from the Bantu tribe of Central Africa begins, In the beginning there was only darkness, water, and the great god Bumba. One day Bumba, in pain from a stomachache, vomited up the sun. The sun dried up some of the water, leaving land. Still in pain, Bumba vomited up the moon, the stars, and then some animals, the leopard, the crocodile, the turtle, and finally, some men. Stories such as this provide a shared sense of community and connection to the past. This segment of Anthropology, What's It to You?, has been made possible by our members and the USU Museum of Anthropology collection, including pre-Columbian Peruvian ceramics, Indonesian textiles, and Great Basin. Details at anthromuseum.usu.edu. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. The book is The Crime of Complicity, The Bystander in the Holocaust. The author is the University of Utah law professor Amos Giora. He's the author of several books. This is the latest, and this is not only academic for him, but it's uh, very personal. His paternal grandparents uh, were murdered in the Holocaust. His uh, parents uh, survived. I wonder if you could talk, uh, Professor Giora, about your father's experiences and, uh, and the bystander effect. There were, uh, you know, there were bystanders who witnessed these uh, death marches. My father was in a camp in Serbia called Bor, B-O-R, which was a mining camp, war camp, because remember, this is now um, summer of 1944, where by all reasonable accounts, the, the Germans know that the war is ending, but you know they're plunging ahead, and they've come to, to Hungary in March of 1944. My father was um, a high school student in Budapest, and... Um, reported as ordered and was transported to Bohr. The Germans needed the mining camp for, I mean, they needed the mines and the coal for the war purposes, even though, as I say, it was pretty clear the thing was almost over. And in November of 44, when the Russian armies coming from the east, that's when the Germans start closing camps down. For instance, Auschwitz is shut down in January of 45. So in November of 44, the decision is made by someone to um, close Bohr, to shut it down. There were in Bohr 8,000 Jews, and they were divided into two groups. The first group is led from Bohr um, back to Hungary, and when they arrive at the Hungarian border, they are ambushed and massacred. It was a trap. My father is in the second group, um, and they begin the, the march in Bohr, and they come down to a town called Nietzsche, in central southern um, Serbia, and 
there awaiting them, awaiting the Germans, are um, partisans under the control of Tito. And in the four days between the first group and the second group, the Tito's partisans were able to set up an ambush and they attacked uh, the German guards, killing most, not all. And the question now became, what do all these 4,000 or so uh, Jews do? It's the middle of the night, in the middle of the winter, in the middle of Serbia. Um, and my father and three others set out without a compass, without a GPS, without Instagram, without anything, one shirt, one pair of pants, no socks, no coat, yes, shoes, on a 136-kilometer walk, march, from Nietzsche in Serbia to Sofia in Bulgaria. It's 136 kilometers. Um, I knew none of this until I was, when I was in Budapest, I met with a historian, Hungarian historian, who has written the history of Bohr and agreed to meet with me. Um, and I should add, my father, who was the greatest father one could have, my a wonderful, extraordinary teacher, but my take on my father was that he couldn't walk from one side of the room to the other side of the room without my mom helping him. And as I came to learn from this Hungarian historian, that absolutely was absolutely incorrect. It was actually my father who led these other four guys on this terrible walk, march, um, in which indeed, to the point of the bystander, they in each village encountered bystanders. Um, none harmed them. Some taunted them. Um, they would, you know, hold a, like a glass of water and show them as if they're offering them water and they would withdraw their arm, retracting the so-called offer. Um, you know, these are um, horrific conditions in the middle of the winter. Um, I don't know how they found food. That I don't know. You know, 136 kilometers is 136 kilometers. Um, but again, as we talked at the very beginning, my father um, in no way blames those villagers for not offering him assistance. Mm. And that's what, uh, I guess that's what you would have wanted them to do, to offer food, offer assistance of some kind. Um, somewhere to sleep, a yeah. barn to sleep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. Uh, wouldn't they have been in danger for doing that? So that's there a very reprisals. Absolutely. So this is a critical point that, that you raise, and it's clearly a, an important question in terms of linking the Holocaust to contemporary society and the legislation. In terms of the bystander legislation, the argument is, and it's absolutely one I agree with, that if dialing 911 will harm you, then there are mitigating circumstances. So when I talk about the bystander in the Holocaust, for me, it's and I hate the word and I apologize, it's using the Holocaust to make a point about contemporary society. Because if we know that the bystanders in action resulted in the murder of, of six million Jews, then from that we clearly learn that in contemporary society, going back to what you correctly noted about evil and passivity, we know that in contemporary society, because of the cell phone, because of social media, it's so much easier to alert law um, enforcement about the travails of another person. And there are ways to do it that guarantee you um, anonymity. You can do so anonymously. And so what I've learned from the Holocaust is indeed that the passivity 
which enables the evil resulted in. And in order to prevent that in contemporary society, I really do believe, genuinely believe, that the bystanders in action is not a moral wrong. I leave that to ethicists and philosophers. But I genuinely believe it, it, it needs to be uh, uh, criminalized as a, as a crime in order to ensure that moving forward people understand that if you don't act, yes, you will be not morally punished or theologically punished, I leave that to others, but to be criminally punished. One of the arguments against this uh, is that uh, we, you know, people are generally good, we should rely on uh, on our moral training and uh, allow people to, to do the right thing. So, indeed, the argument of, you know, we are good people, we are generally good people, we are, I mean, of all the phrases that, that we were all raised on, I think is a lovely mantra. Um, but I think if you view history and you think about contemporary society, as lovely as that adage is and as, as warm and fuzzy as it may make us feel, it historically is, is inaccurate. Yes, there are instances of people, quote-unquote, doing the right thing. Absolutely. But uh, history is, is replete with examples of people not doing the right thing. I want to bring in an email. By the way, you can email our guest with a question or comment, uh, upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. You can call us, 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. That's toll-free. Our guest is Amos Giora. His book is The Crime of Complicity, the Bystander in the Holocaust. Here's Steve. Uh, Steve says, I'm struck by the particular tension that your guest faces <clears throat> Excuse me, as both a proponent of doing something when injustice is witnessed and as a former officer in the Israeli military. In the last couple of months, the Israeli military has killed over 200 unarmed Palestinian protesters and wounded thousands more. By virtually any measure, this is injustice. Israel, in contravention of international law, occupies the West Bank and Gaza Strip. Uh, he goes on to say, uh, as you guess, presumably endorses around the world, people are taking nonviolent action in an effort to end some of these injustices, boycott Israel until it stops these practices. Some people are. But rather than engage in a dialogue, Israel and American officials in state and federal government have acted to criminalize the boycott itself and even a novice violation of First Amendment discussion of it. And numerous states uh, have passed uh, outlawing such a nonviolent support of human rights, and there is a bill in Congress to do the same nationally. This, I would think, proposes, uh, proposes an enormous quandary to a man who both abhors standing by and letting justice happen and also is a former member of the Israeli military. What are his thoughts, says Steve. So um, thanks to Steve for that very thoughtful email. When I began the book, I had to resolve whether or not I'm going to look at individual accountability as compared to institutional accountability. You know, we could have a long conversation about, for instance, the role of the Catholic Church uh, in the Holocaust. And I decided that for me, because of, of my uh, intense desire to have legislation, is to the role of the individual. When you see a, 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 a victim in peril, I need to add that the victim in peril can be as a result of a punch in the nose or, or just falling down and somebody in distress. With respect to um, the, the, what Steve mentions, the, the boycott, divestiture, sanction, the BDS, and the, the um, events of the, the Gaza fence, of the Gaza border between Israel and the Gaza Strip, I've been asked a number of times about, you know, having indeed served in the idea of what, what is my role. I um, 
I felt that the 19 years that I served in the Israel Defense Forces, where I was, and I write about this a lot, I'm very open about what I was involved in. Um, I felt that what, what I was involved in was it was consistent with international law or domestic law, morality, and armed conflict. I'm the first one, um, and you can see my writings, I'm the first one when Israel needs to be criticized. You know, I wear two hats, I'm an American and Israeli. I live, teach at the University of Utah, live in Israel. When when the government of Israel needs to be criticized or when Prime Minister Netanyahu needs to be criticized, um, my writings are an open record. I have a, an, another new, I have another book coming out shortly um, in which I um, am very critical of Prime Minister Netanyahu. So um, when when criticism needs to be heard, I'm, you know, my voice is heard. Uh, and we, we do have a call. We'll go to Bernadette uh, next, but I want to get this uh, email in because it's a very, very similar uh, issue. So this is Glenn. Um, I'll, I'll skip the first paragraph because it's uh, he repeats a lot of what Steve said. Um, let's see, and then uh, Glenn continues. As a bystander, I would like to know if we as humans need to stand up for the human rights of Palestinians, their claims of illegal occupation, illegal settlements, brutal military tactics, etc., or should we simply side with Israel and allow them to handle the situation with little or no oversight? Or should I act, trying to engender some change? I'm asking as a concerned bystander, not trying to stir controversy. As a high-ranking member of the IDF, could your guest to please at least partially justify the application of such tactics? It seems that the brutality there, admittedly on both sides, is self-perpetuating. The situation is in a decaying orbit, much like the U.S. legislature, which in which neither side is willing to swallow a little pride or a lot for the sake of a single shred of improvement. Uh, he concludes, I really do not uh, want to take away from the spirit of this conversation. The Holocaust is not something we should take for granted or lightly. But arrangement between Palestinians and Israel is something that I have, as I stated earlier, been commiserating about for a long time. That's Glenn. So I'm the first one to agree with Glenn. A um, whole different part of my of my life, in addition to the book, is that I, uh, for five years, was very involved in, in implementing what is referred to as the Oslo Agreement between the Israelis and the Palestinians. And I've been involved in various efforts subsequent to that. I'm the first one to say, along with 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 Glenn, that if that resolution of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is something that you know, as I say, I've been involved in, I'm a, I'm a supporter of, I'm an advocate of, having been involved in negotiating this. This is to use the word complex and is, is so, so trite, but using complex not in a trite way. Um, it's going to require determined and effective leadership not necessarily from the United States, which, depending on who the president is and how he conducts himself, is helpful, but it's going to require Israeli and Palestinian leaders sitting down one day, hopefully, and resolving the conflict. I think that um, there are no winners in, in this intractable conflict, which has been going on for decades. Um, and that's not to minimize the complexity of the issues. Again, I want to emphasize I've been deeply involved in this the issues are not, you know, just you know, snap of the fingers and, we're, and they're behind us. Um, somebody who opposes Israeli um, policy, you know, free speech, demonstrate, march, write letters to your congressmen, senators. I mean, I think that's that's the whole beauty of open discussion and open debate. Let's go to Bernadette in Rockville, uh, who has called us. Bernadette, uh, glad you called. Yeah, um, my question is, I'll come bring it back to instead of those global issues. I read about a study once where people were evaluated and how they responded to somebody who needed help. And the difference was whether or not they were in a hurry. 
So I was wondering if the author could just comment on if that has been played out to be factual, and I guess it would just lend us to be more um, present so we're not in a hurry all the time. And I'll take my answer off the air. Okay, thank, thank, you. thank you, Bernadette. Uh, and it illustrates, I think, you know, your experience, uh, Professor Gior, and, and also sometimes the, the explanations are, are quite banal, right? I think Bernadette raises a in- really interesting point. And go back to my going to the football game. I Yes, I was in a hurry because, you know, I had to get to the stadium. Um, in many ways, not, the, the cell phone minimizes that excuse because... I'll give you an example. I was in, in Tel Aviv this past summer, and there was a person on the street in distress. I'm not a physician. Um, I did the Israeli version of 911, and I said, I'm standing at street corner such and such. Um, and the system is ex- ex- extremely efficient. Um, they say, thank you. They don't ask for your name. They don't ask for your phone number. So people are concerned about anonymity and potential danger to them. That you know mitigates that. Um, I felt that I did my, met my bystander, from my perspective, my bystander duty by alerting the authorities. Um, I hailed a cab, and within a minute, I got a text message from the um, the 100, which is the 911. That the um, you know the paramedics had had showed up and just wanted to thank me for contacting them. So if you're in a hurry, I mean literally you can just keep walking, just dial nine one one. In the pre cell phone age or pre social media age, perhaps it was you know it was more difficult. But today, I the cell phone or the the smartphone and the social media have so fundamentally rearticulated our interaction one with the other and the need the capability to be very fast make the call and move on i think that that for people in a hurry the smartphone um, resolves that tension uh, i don't know if you're familiar with the study that uh, bernadette uh, has referenced uh, or uh, you looked into other studies but uh, i'd like to before we go to another break uh talk about uh, there's I imagine there's a range of issues why people don't make that call or don't intervene. I think there there there's a wide range. I think the easy the easy answer, which there's no, first of all, there's no easy answer, but the easy answer is I don't want to get involved because um, you know I don't want to get involved. Two, I'm afraid of the consequences. Three, I don't know that person, and therefore I don't owe them a duty. Perhaps four, I've gotten involved in the past and had negative repercussions on me. And five, you know, I don't mean, maybe I do mean this the way it sounds, I just don't care. Um, those, are the, those are the general arguments, responses that I've heard um, while writing the book and then, you know, being giving book talks around the world on this, I don't find any of those convincing, but I understand that I have to address them because those are the responses that I hear. They, I disagree with them, but I recognize the need to address them. And a, a big one that's emphasized, we uh, I, I do uh, class for incoming freshmen uh, every uh, year here at USU, and they they get training on uh, bystander effect. What the, the, what they're now calling is upstander. We need to be upstanders, right? Um, and uh, one factor that they point out in that training is that uh, people, if there's a crowd of people, 
people say, well, somebody else will do it. Uh, it's Absolutely. not on me. All studies, all studies show, and you're right, all studies show the more people who are standing around, the fewer will call. When it's a one-to-one relationship, I mean, that relationship, quote-unquote, right, because in many, most cases we don't know the person. Um, there's, the, there's not that pre-existing relationship. But the fewer the, the bystanders who are around, the better the chance somebody will call. The more people that are around, the, few, the less chance that somebody will call because everybody will say, hey, he'll do it or she'll do it. Absolutely correct. I was watching a program the other day. This was uh, done by the BBC. Um, they staged an event, uh, or at least it was in Britain, um, and uh, the, they had the various actors. One was you know, kind of dressed like a homeless man, uh, and uh, unfortunately, from my perspective, when they uh, uh, staged a uh, well-dressed man who was seeming to be in, in distress, uh, he got help a little quicker. Doesn't surprise me because we can, we I mean, in broad strokes, right? It's easier to identify with somebody who we think looks like us or is more like us. It kind of goes back to what your parents said. It's, it's if we're if we're trained to, if we accept that the, that's the other, then we're less likely to help, perhaps. Absolutely correct. Uh, let's take another break. When we come back, I want to uh, get into, you have uh, three case studies from Holland, which are very interesting at, at different uh, levels. And, and in each of these cases, I think, uh, well, at least two of the cases, um, what we might see as maybe deficient help, uh, the, the people help somewhat, uh, they came away um, thinking that the, they had uh, they had helped sufficiently. Anyway, we'll get into that. And then you study some uh, some sexual assault cases as well. I want to talk about that as well. Amos Gior is our guest. Uh, the book is The Crime of Complicity, The Bystander in the Holocaust. And he joins us from KUR Studios in Salt Lake City. What is the statistical likelihood that I have been a guinea pig in one of your experiments? 100%. On the next Radio Lab. Why does the world exist? The cosmos is ultimately a concept. Mathematical quantities through space time. A fraction of a second of the distance traveled by light in a vacuum. And then you've got atoms. You can split an atom. Oh, my God. Yeah, it has pretty interesting consequences. That's in the next Radio Lab. Up next at 10 on UPR. This is Craig Jessup, Dean of the King College of the Arts at Utah State University. UPR is everywhere you are with classical music programming, news and information statewide through their 36 signals, worldwide on the web at upr.org, and through the new online app. UPR is only a push of the button away. These days, people go to great lengths to shed the stress of daily life. There's acupuncture, deep tissue massage, meditation, yoga. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. At All Things Considered, we offer our own type of healing. News stories that span the rainbow of human experience. Nourish your mind. Weekdays on All Things Considered from NPR News and Escape the Ordinary. This afternoon from 3 to 6.30 on Utah Public Radio with Shalane Smith-Needham. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We've reached our last segment with Amos Giora. He's a professor of law at the University of Utah and uh, author of uh, a book, uh, many books, but uh, the latest is The Crime of Complicity, the Bystander in the Holocaust. He joins us from KUR Studios in Salt Lake City. Our thanks to the good folks there. Professor Giora, uh, not directly related here, but it struck me so much. I wonder if you'd uh, tell the story of your grandmother and your mother, I think this was, um, who at a certain point they were lined up against the wall and they thought that their deaths were imminent. Yes, my 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 mother's Holocaust story 
is akin one-to-one to Anne Frank's, with one exception that my mother survived and Anne Frank obviously didn't. My mother was in hiding in the attic with my grandmother. Um, they were fed every day by an elderly Catholic woman. And one day came the in- inevitable knock on the door, and my grandmother and mother were taken from the attic to the courtyard in the apartment building where they lived. And they indeed were lined up to be shot. And at the very last moment, Jewish pioneers who were um, young pioneers, who were Jews in their teens, 20s, who had stolen the uniforms of the Arrow Cross, the Hungarian collaborators, and had fooled or were able to sometimes fool the real Arrow Cross. And in this particular instance, knock on wood, the um, the young pioneers convinced the Arrow Cross that they were the Arrow Cross, right? And it's deception. And they said to the real Arrow Cross, leave these Jews to us, meaning my mother and grandmother. Um, and that's how they were saved the first time. And then they uh, went from safe house to safe house. They were outed again. They were um, taken to be shot again. And um, in spite of all of my efforts, my mother will not share with me how she was saved the second time. So the first time, yes, I know by the young pioneers. The second time, I don't know. Uh, But in the context of the bystander, what is relevant um, to this is that when she and my grandmother were running through the streets of Budapest and my mother, as I mentioned earlier, was 12, you know, they had the yellow star. They were obviously Jews. Um, The bystanders who saw them ignored them. Ignored them, didn't uh, didn't help. Not at all. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Your your mother, uh, I think she recorded something or wrote something. She speaks admiringly of her mother at one of those times when they were lined up against the wall. Indeed. My my mother, after my grandmother uh, died in February of 1980, wrote an article that was published, if I recall correctly, by Forward Magazine, in which she wrote about the literally the minute by minute by minute by minute how my grandmother was instructing my mom how to when the shooting begins uh how to fall and how my grandmother will fall on her my grandmother was was to call her a, a cool a cool cucumber would be an understatement right she's giving her giving my mom very specific instructions as they're standing against the wall with the shooters standing opposite them, how to conduct herself. I mean, it, it, it is, uh, you know, um, in terms of maternal instincts and um, extraordinary control in unimaginable circumstances, pretty amazing. I mean, amazing is an understatement. I guess it's how we all wish we would act, but we don't, I guess we never know until we're in that situation. That is 100% correct. Yeah. I, I want to make sure we get to, in the uh, sexual assault cases. You you uh, studied some uh, some some cases on on campus, right? Um, I studied three particular cases. I studied the Vanderbilt case. I studied the Stanford case where there actually were bystanders who did the right thing. And uh, the rape and murder of Sharice Iverson in, in a Las Vegas casino um which, if you take all three together, they really play into what the bystander should do and the consequences of bystander inaction. 
Maybe you could uh, maybe go into. We have uh, about three minutes left. Maybe go into a little more detail there and, and compare and contrast what 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 worked, so it, what, what didn't. In by, in the Vanderbilt rape case, um, a football player rapes his on-off girlfriend in the dorm room. Has invites invites other football players to come over who also rape her. Sleeping in, on the upstairs bunk is a teammate roommate who hears the rape, the rapes. Um, he feigns sleep because it makes him uncomfortable. He could have prevented it. He could have done something, but because it made him uncomfortable, he chose to feign sleep. He, in the middle of the night, leaves the room after she's passed out, she's vomited, she's naked. Um, he's not prosecuted, not not interrogated, not investigated, not anything. Because in Tennessee, there's no bystander law. He today uh, has graduated from Vanderbilt, has no idea why people like me um, demand bystander legislation. He absolutely could have prevented the rape of this woman. Sharice Iverson was a seven-year-old girl who was taken, accosted, taken into a bathroom by a 19-year-old named Jeremy Strohmeyer. Strohmeyer's best friend, David Cash, follows them into the bathroom. Cash stands in a toilet seat, looks into the other stall, sees Strohmeyer raping her, says to him, hey, dude, what are you doing? Strohmeyer assures him all is well. Cash is relieved, leaves the bathroom. Three to five minutes later, Strohmeyer comes out without the girl. Cash says to Strohmeyer, where is she? Strohmeyer says, don't worry about it. It's okay. I raped her, killed her. Strohmeyer gets first-degree murder. He's not executed in Nevada because he pled guilty. David Cash, his classes are boycotted at UC Berkeley where he was a student. He's interviewed on 60 Minutes by Ed Bradley. I don't know if he's a sociopath or a psychopath. I don't know the difference between the two. When he's interviewed by Ed Bradley, he says, what, what do you want from me? I didn't know her. I didn't owe her any duty. My only duty was to uh, Strohmeyer, who's my buddy, my homie. David Cash could have prevented the horrific rape and murder of, of um, Sharice Iverson. He is the classic bystander. The fact that he went unpunished because in Nevada there's no bystander legislation. Um, the consequences of not having bystander legislation. Stanford rape Brock Turner, the swimmer. Um, he's on top of a woman next to a dumpster on a trail at Stanford University. Two bicyclists from Sweden see him on top of her. Something doesn't look right to them. They call out to him. He runs. They they you know they catch up with him. He's uh, convicted. There you may recall the judge in California that I believe was recalled because of the light sentence he gave Brock Turner. So in that case, you had the bystanders doing something, preventing further harm to this woman. Cash and and Mac Prelo, the student at Vanderbilt, for me are absolutely the poster children of of why we need bystander legislation and of the consequences to the victim. I emphasize a million times over. At the end of the day, what this is all about is protecting the victim. Yeah, those are very stark examples. We'll leave those uh, examples from Holland uh, to to the book. You can read the crime of complicity by Stand the Holocaust. Just have a couple of minutes left. Uh, so you are advocating for legal requirement, laws to be passed uh, requiring uh, people to, uh, to to I guess at least report. Absolutely. Uh, so, uh, what shape would that take? Um, I, I guess a, a call to to nine one one or the police right. would satisfy that requirement. That's exactly that. That is. All- that's exactly right, and that's why the phrase 911 bill um, is, is the most um, accurate articulation of the legislation. Um, again, we all, I mean, children are born today with a cell phone in their hand. Um, and really, the, the requirement is such a low bar. Just dial 911, say, you know, 1234 Main Street, there's somebody on the ground that needs help, and that's it. And if you take all the, all, all the these issues we've discussed in, this, in, this, in our conversation, um, Mac Prelo, just dial 911. Uh, David Cash, just dial 911. 
and would have prevented, you know, the rape of the woman in the Vanderbilt dorm room and would have prevented the, the rape and murder of Sharice Iverson. Hmm. Well, um, how are things going with this? Or do you do you find receptive legislatures? So there are ten legis- there are ten states that have such leg- such legislation in the United States. There are four countries that have such legislation. Um, I'm in contact with the legislators and attorneys generals from a, d- different states, and here in Utah, Representative Brian King last January introduced similar legislation. And look forward to continuing the fight. Well, very interesting uh, book and uh, and very impactful personal experiences. I'm I'm grateful you you shared those. Uh, the crime of complicity, the bystander in the Holocaust. The author Amos Giora, who's a professor of law at University of Utah, has joined us from KUR Studios in Salt Lake City. Professor Giora, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah. Next time on Living on Earth, the new Democratic majority in the House has formed the Select Committee on the Climate Crisis. I anticipate the members of the Select Committee will press for every piece of legislation that comes to the floor of the House to be looked at through a green lens. I'm Steve Kerwood, and we'll chat with Committee Chair and Florida Representative Kathy Castor on the next Living on Earth from PRI. That's tomorrow morning at 10 here on Utah Public Radio. What do ancient myths have to do with today? In the age of Me Too, plenty. I would be working and then I would go check the news and it would be literally about what I had just been writing about. I have always felt very passionately that these myths are relevant, but it really drove the point home. From Homer to Harvey Weinstein, reclaiming women's power on the next To the Best of Our Knowledge from PRX. Sunday morning at 9 on Utah Public Radio. A statewide service of Utah State University's College of Humanities and Social Sciences. This is KUSR Logan, KUSUFM Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, Moab, KUST, Price, KCEU, and streaming online at upr.org.